G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up on Today with Jeff Vines, we're looking back at a series called The Story as Pastor Jeff journeys through major stories, events and key figures of the Bible. In this episode, we're looking back at another account from the New Testament. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. In this message, we'll hear more about the early followers of Christ, the first church. Pastor Jeff is teaching from the book of Acts. This little group, the whole world started responding to them in one of two ways. The first group, people just wanted to get in. It wasn't merely the way they lived that inspired so many people, it was the way they died. So these are people who were really sold out for what they believed in and they changed the world. They gave forgiveness, they actually prayed for their enemies. They prayed for God to bless those who persecuted them. For all of this message and much more in this series, you can listen again wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines. Let's hear the rest of this message now with Pastor Jeff. The first century church was like this. Christians plus persecution equals kingdom expansion, so bring it on. I would rather the kingdom of God be expanded and me suffer than me do no suffering and the kingdom of God stifle. What kind of people were these people? People that realize that hope is not here, that it is in what is yet to come. And so whatever I sacrifice and give up here is worth eternal glory And whatever shame I experience here, I count it worthy or I count it a privilege that God saw me as worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now stay with me. This is important. This is so important. This is worth this. This little five minute segment is worth the message. So if you've been sleeping, it's a good time to wake up and then I'll tell you when to go back to sleep. (laughs) The apostle Paul will go into Athens where the philosophers are in Acts 17 And you have to understand in the time of Paul and time of Jesus, all the philosophers were looking for the logos, that one thing to which everything else pointed. The Epicureans, the Stoics, everybody had their way of trying to find out what is that one thing in life to which every other thing points? What is the one thing that if I can, if I can find it, that one philosophy, that one belief that if I can just experience it, that will bring meaning and purpose to my life. So Paul goes in to the Areopagus, and he talks to the highest of the highest philosophers. 
And as he comes through town, he noticed there are gods for everything. But he notices one statue that says the unknown God. They were so afraid of missing the God that they had one called the unknown. Just in case we miss one, it's this one. Imagine. Paul is so brilliant in his debate that he sees that and he goes to them. He says, you know, this one unknown God, I'll tell you who it is. It's the God who created everything. It's, the Logos is not a philosophy. The Logos is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And in him, we live and move and have our being. The Christians really believed down deep inside that the one thing everybody was looking for was a connection with the creator and to have hope. And so they were willing to do whatever it took to make sure that message got to the corners of the world. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, it did, and it changed all of humanity. Now stay with me. Andrew Walls is a historian that writes about the progression of Christianity. And he says that wherever religion started, the center of that religion has remained the center until this day. Let me show you a map to kind of get you along the lines here. Hinduism is basically an Indian religion still today. There are Hindus all over the world, but the center of Hinduism is still India. The center of Islam is still Mecca. There are Muslims all over the place, but the center is here. The center of Judaism, the religion into which Christianity was born, is still in Jerusalem. And then the philosophers, uh, the Greeks, the Stoics, that kind of thing still is, for the most part, in what is yet today, maybe not Alexandria, but in North Africa. It, the center of Buddhism is still in Southeast Asia. Buddhist all over the place. There's only one religion whose center is always shifting. Would you like to guess what it is? Christianity. Christianity starts in Jerusalem, but it wasn't very long until it impacted and took over the Roman Empire and became central to Rome. And then among the Europeans, and then among the North Africans, and then among the Celts and the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks. And then from there, it moves over to North America, then to South America, then to Africa, then to Australia. The center is always shifting so that today, right now, for the first time in human history, there are more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than there are in the northern. Over 50% of all Christians live in the southern hemisphere. First time in world history. Now the question is why? Why has there been a shift where the powerful pockets of Christianity today, the first century Christianity, is in South America and in Africa? Now you have places of it here, obviously. And you, you know, if you think about Australia and New Zealand, for, for, the, for the most part, that's post-Christian nation. It isn't the Christianity of the first century. But most of your Christians are in this area now, you say, what about us? Yes, we're a Christian nation, but are we really? Come on. Are we? We're founded on it, but man, we've gotten away from it. Now, the question is, why does the center of Christianity move? Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, says this. He says, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good, and eventually it becomes virtually dormant in those places, and the center moves somewhere else. Now, let me explain what he's saying. When Christianity is in a place of power and affluence and wealth, like America or Europe, it will remain there for a while, but it won't remain there for long. It will shift, and it will tend to shift away the center of Christianity 
to places where there's not so much power and affluence. Here's the point though. Why does it move? It moves because, now stay with me. Now this is the time for you to wake up if you're sleeping on me. In places, this is so, you gotta hear, folks, you gotta get this. Because I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you gotta get this. In places where there's affluence and wealth, Jesus becomes a means to an end. In other words, you're so concentrated and fixated on wealth and power that you start to see Jesus as your savior. But it's like, Jesus, thank you for saving me, but what have you done for me lately? What are you gonna do for me now to help me get that house and that car and help me keep my job? Jesus, I love you. Thanks for saving me. Great job. Now what do you got for me? And so in places of affluence, the center of Christianity shifts and moves because anytime anything great happens, it requires a great sacrifice. And people in affluence aren't willing to sacrifice because they've got a foot in both worlds. Then it moves to a place where people have already been there, done that, and they realize, man, no amount of wealth is gonna change anything. What really matters is the kingdom of God. And I'm willing to give up whatever is required of me, even in my very life, if it means that the kingdom of Christ, the real hope that I have in the world to come, will grow and expand. Look, it's tough for you and me, us. It's tough for us to know what the early church was like because we have too much. Remember what Anastas, my friend in Rwanda, said to me? When I said, look at those pastors, they get up at 5.30 every morning. 5.30 every morning, they pray for an hour. They greet God with the sun, or God greets them with the sun. They live hand to mouth. They live in a house probably as big as this stage, and they go out and they give their lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And I looked over and I said, I can't, you know, why, why am I not like that? And remember what he said? It's okay, Pastor Jeff, you can't help it. You're an American. <laughs> and he's my friend. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're distracted by affluence. You've got too many other concerns. Jesus is just one of many concerns and you end up using him as a means to an end. But the early church knew that he was not a means to an end. He was the end himself. And that the thing you're all looking for is a relationship with him and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not only that, the first Christians understood that everything they had belonged to God. Let's keep going. Almost done. Stay with me. Everything they had belonged to God. Everything. <laughs> Even their lives. The Bible says... They were willing, basically, to give whatever God required. Remember what happened when Anastas took me to the prison? I'd been there for years, and all the prisons were safe. And the last year I went, he took me way up in the mountains. And all the way up, he tells me, this is not going to be a safe prison. And it finally dawned on me, right, as we're getting ready to pull in the gate. And he said, stay on my right-hand side, stay between me and the wall and do what I tell you to do. And all of a sudden, I ask Anastas, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Am I in any danger? You know? And remember what he said to me? He looked at me and he said, Pastor Jeff, does it matter? Does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> and then the look I got was kind of like, okay, let me get this straight. He didn't say a word, but I have a good enough relationship I could translate his look. And it was like, okay, let me get this straight. You're willing to serve God as long as it doesn't cost you anything. But if you're in a little danger, you're going to bail on me? See, that's how they think. I don't think like that. I think, Jesus, I love you, but don't ask me for anything. <laughs> The first question when I was in Africa, I never heard one person when they entered into suffering ask the question, why has God abandoned me? That's very much a Western thing. Their question was, I wonder how God is going to use this to expand his kingdom on the earth. Do you know the Bible says 
in verse 42, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know what that Greek word is? It's the word axios. It means wait. And when they were flogged and persecuted for the name of Christ, they walked out rejoicing. And here's what they were saying, basically. Thank God that he trusted me enough that I could bear this weight and not leave my post. That God trusted that I could handle this and I would still be faithful. That I'm like Jesus. And they considered themselves privileged and rejoicing. The question in tough times for us is, can I really trust God? The question in the first church was, can God really trust me? I just don't know where we are in this. I'm concerned for myself. I'm concerned for you. Are, Are we like that? I mean... What's wrong with us? I mean, has affluence just poisoned us to such a degree that we can't even see the first church anymore? We walk around wondering, why doesn't God do the miracles in the first century like he did in the first church? Do you think possibly it could have anything to do with the fact that we just don't focus on God? He's a means to an end for us. What would happen if we were totally sold out and had a singular vision and lived our lives every moment, every waking day for the power and the message and expansion of the kingdom of God? I wonder what God would do. Remember what we said, obedience always precedes the miraculous. Five, the first church understood that religion was the enemy. All right, you got two points to make and I got to finish. The first church understood. The first church understood that religion was the enemy. In Acts chapter 5, go to verse 17. Then the high priest and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, this is interesting. Guess who it was that killed the Christians in the first church? It wasn't Rome. That comes later. There's a policy of persecution. At first, it was the religious people. The religious people. Why? Because if God is merciful and gracious, religion's out of a job. And they can no longer bind the people and use power. Uh, to, to, to create boundaries that are not there. And so what, what do the disciples do? They spend most of their time trying to fend off the religious leaders and religious leaders struggle with grace because grace, listen now, grace requires unworthiness. It means you're really no better than anybody else if you're a Christ follower. If you're religious, you think you are. But that's only because you're still operating under religion and you think you're acceptable before God because you're good. And that stinks because you're never good enough. Religious people don't like Christ followers, so they try to kill them. Now, now stay with me. I'm going to bring back some friends of mine, but it's their children. The adults died. The potato head family. Now, this is an example that we use and because of time, I can't do the whole thing. But I will say we've used this numerous times to show and illustrate we Christians believe that when you're saved, when you confess Christ as your Savior, when you are SVP and you've done that, that you're injected again with a spiritual torpedo that enables you to do things you could not previously do, see things you could not previously see, feel things you could not previously feel. So now inside you, you have the power to say no to sin and death. Now you're not going to be perfect in it, but we believe the spirit of God gives you the power. The apostle Paul says, why do I do the very thing I don't want to do? Most of us stop there because later in the past, he says, thank God there is a way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a way that Christ lives in you and you can say no to the things you know you should be saying no to. It's not us and sin. I'm not, not, I'm not bagging on the angels. This just happened to be the order. It's not us and sin against God. It's us and God against this guy. And this guy 
cannot sin, cannot fulfill the evil desires of the flesh unless we give him our eyes and our nose and our mouth. And we've been through that a thousand times. The point is, when the Spirit of God comes into you, you have the power to say no to sin. No, you can't borrow my eyes. No, you can't borrow my mouth. I'm not going to say that. You cannot borrow my ears. I won't listen to that. And Paul says in Romans 6, 12 and 13, that do not go on lending the members of your body to sin. So he makes, he makes sin a personal entity. And he says, there's a power in you now that can overcome these things. Now, here's the point I want to make. If it's true that you don't have the power to overcome these things until the Spirit of God is injected inside you, then why do you and I expect people who are not Christians to act any differently? <laughs> why do you expect someone not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly and holy life? Why do, you expect, why do we expect people to even see what a godly life is until the Spirit of God has transformed them? Say, so why are you, I don't know if I like where you're going with this, Pastor Jeff. Oh, good. Good. Here's my question. If religion is the enemy, because God is about mercy and grace, forgiveness, acceptance, who in your mind is not worthy to walk into this place? In the first church, everybody came in. In verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns among Jerusalem, bringing their sick, those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. That's nothing to you and me, but you got to understand those people in the first century were looked at as being cursed and given up by God, and the church invited them in. You do realize we, have, we are the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. What hope does a person have outside the transformational power of the spirit of God in them? So you start thinking about people, oh no, well, if that kind of person came in that back door, well, they, they shouldn't be here. Why? Why? That's because you're still acting religious. You think you're better than them. If we close the doors to anybody that's not like us, if we close the door to all sinners, the first question is, what are you doing here? Second question is, second question is, nobody will be coming in. Actually, that's a statement. Who, who have you closed your mind off to? The vision that God gave that church was everybody comes in. The problem is we operate like this. If you behave, then we'll teach you and you'll believe. And if you believe what we say, then we'll accept you. Jesus was the opposite. We're going to accept you from the get-go and love you because you're creating the image of God. And then because of our acceptance and love, we're going to hope that we can teach you and you'll believe. And then it's the spirit of God that will enable you to behave. So aren't all welcome into this place? And they were in the first church, and that's why they changed the world. And the affluent West, sometimes we have our little cliques, and we, we say, you got to dress like this, talk like this, act like this. If there's anybody that you would not permit to come into this place, that means you're still acting religious, and you still don't get it. And the early church was different. Remember what we said? You know you've created God in your own image when, you hate all the, when he hates all the same people you do. <laughs> You know you've created God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. And finally, in the end, the first church understood that through Jesus, the entire world could be changed. When you're a church like the first church, oh, it's risky. Oh yeah, you're gonna have people come in and gonna make you real uncomfortable. It's risky. And you're gonna have to do some explaining to your eight-year-old son when he says, why is that guy dressed like a girl? <laughs> you mean somebody like that may come? Yes. Where's the power of change? It's through the Spirit of God, right? We are the hope of the world, right? 
Boy, I love to look at the look on your faces right now. You say, well, Jeff, I was with you until that. That's where I draw the line. See, you don't, we, you're still acting religious. Now, obviously, we don't want people to remain as they are. We want them to become as they are. But the Spirit of God will change and transform. Let, them hear the go- Let people hear the gospel. Let the Spirit of God do the changing. You be loving and accepting and embracing. And the church, that door back there, you will not be able to bolt it shut for people trying to get in. Everybody's looking for love, acceptance. And they're asking, is there really a community in the world that actually loves me? Really? Where are they? Because everybody's looking for the same thing. Love, acceptance, grace, mercy, purpose, meaning. And Jesus is the Logos. And finally, that first church understood that through Jesus, the entire world could be changed. It is only Jesus and the receiving of his son that will change our world. Can I ask you, please, where are you in all this? Are you concerned at all that we're far removed from the first church? Do you know we can get back there? We see glimpses of it at Celebrate Recovery, don't we? Once a month. We see a glimpse of it. Still not there though, is it? We're not there. Are you willing to do this? The Bible says that we are the clay and God is the potter. And when the potter tries to form the clay and it just works after year, after year, after year, but it's tough to get through. At one point he takes the clay off the wheel and he slams it down onto the ground. And then he bends down and he picks it up again and starts all over. How many want to start all over? Yeah, man, I want to start all over and I want to get this right. I want to get this right so badly. I want us all to get this right. Can we start over? Can we start concentrating on getting back to that first church? Can we start having love and mercy and acceptance and reaching out to our community and not being so overwhelmed with what we do and get here, but what's out there? I'm going to try to lead you and guide you. This is like a new lease on life for me. I got a second win. Actually, it's more like fourth win. I got my fourth win. I'm ready to go. Clarity over the last few weeks. Clarity what we're supposed to be doing, what I'm supposed to be doing, what this church is supposed to be doing. And we don't do enough, but we're going to keep going. Now you're saved by grace through faith. I get that. But how many of you are willing for God to take you off the potter's wheel, throw you down? And I don't care if you're 80 years old and start again. If you are, let's start over. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for the power of Acts chapter five. And I would pray in Jesus' name right now that lives would be changed. I pray that our eyes would have been opened. Father, we want to go to a place where you intended the church to be. We want to receive and accept all people in hopes that they will come as they are, expecting them not to stay as they are, as we don't want ourselves to stay as we are. We want to be changed by that spiritual torpedo that comes in and reorganizes us from the inside out. And we know that only Jesus can do that. No amount of hard effort will do it. Only Jesus can change a mind, can open our eyes, can call us into salvation and sanctification. And so, Father, I pray that we'd be a church that is willing to give everything for the cause of Christ, everything if you require it. Open our eyes to where we are lacking. Give us strength to make the decision to go forward. In Jesus' name as a church, we said, amen. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Hey, this is Pastor Jeff, and I want to tell you I'm very excited about an upcoming series called The Trouble with Christianity. What I find is a lot of people are really interested in pursuing Christ, but there's a few things they believe, Christians believe, that they just can't get their head around. And we're going to deal with those in hopes of helping people discover the truth about Christ and Christianity. Don't miss the series. Today with Jeff Fines. For all of this message and for much more in this series, you can listen again wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 